come to the time in our worship service where we together open God's Word and we read together. This is the passage that in a few moments the sermon will be based upon. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44, and it's found on page 841 and 842 of your pew Bible, if you need to use that Bible. Mark chapter 6, verse 30 through verse 40. Let's give our attention now to God's holy and inerrant word, beginning in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to, eat, even to eat, and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together as we prepare to sit beneath God's Word this morning. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do praise You and thank You for Your amazing grace. And we pray that now as we Prepare to sit beneath your word, you would shine upon us again with that amazing grace, that you would remind us this morning that though we are all unique and individuals, and as individuals we're dealing with all kinds of different things in this life as we come through these doors, but we pray that you would deal with us all the same in the sense that you would remind us that we are far more broken than we could ever imagine. But because of Jesus and because of your amazing grace, at the same time that we are far more broken than we could ever imagine, we can also be assured that we are far more loved, far more accepted and secure than we could have ever dared to dream as possible. And so, Father, we pray that as we open your word, you would take us to the good news of the gospel, to your amazing grace, and that you would change us by this grace. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, this morning, oh, first, uh, dismiss the children's, uh, children to children's church. So kids ages three to first grade, if you make your way uh, to the back of the sanctuary, you'll be taken to your children's church class. Um, 
This morning is a special morning uh, because a friend of mine is here with us and he'll be preaching this morning. His name is Alan Foster and Alan is a, or has been a church planter and now works with our denomination uh, under the mission to North America uh, and works in recruiting and training church planters to go all over the place. And uh, this past weekend, some of you are aware, some of you are not aware, but this past weekend we had an officers retreat. The deacons and the elders got away for a weekend and we were able to do some planning and discussion, discussion, have discussion and talk about where we're headed in the future uh, as Grace Community Church. And Alan was, uh, was kind enough to come and share in that with us and very thankful that he is here with us this morning to open up God's Word. And so Alan, come on up. Looking forward to hearing from you this morning. It's going to be with you all this morning. Let me kind of get myself settled in up here. I've known Nathan for, I guess, a couple of years now. Um, still like him, so, you know. Um, <laughs> it's always exciting. Um, no, it's, I've really enjoyed getting to know your pastor and even have, having had time this past weekend with your officers, your elders and deacons, we had a great time at the lake um, planning and thinking and strategizing and really rehearsing together. It was wonderful for me to hear the stories of what God has done. We had a time, I guess it was Friday night, um, just charting out the strengths and weaknesses of the church and thinking about how to address the weaknesses. But the cool thing was uh, they came up with about three times as many strengths as they did weaknesses, which is really cool. And I visit churches around the country, um, church plants and um, other churches, and I just came away very encouraged. Uh, So you all should be as well to see what God is doing and and where he's taking you all. Um, We're going to look this morning at one of my favorite uh, stories in the Bible, and we read it earlier. It's it's the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. It's a familiar story. It's an important miracle story in the Scriptures. It's, it's the only miracle story mentioned in all four of the Gospels. Uh, and it, it really occurs at somewhat of a turning point in Jesus' ministry. After this point, he begins to move uh, resolutely toward the cross. And in so doing, he begins to turn his attention away from the crowds and focus more and more on his disciples. He's preparing them to minister, to take uh, the ministry that he began and continue it after the cross. So this morning, what I want us to do is simply walk through the story. It's familiar to many of you. Um, I just want us to walk through it. And then after we've told the story and gotten a feel for the context of the story itself, I want to make seven Implication: seven ways we can look and apply this story to our lives. Um, I'll, I'll read, or we have it, we've had it read from the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to be referring to the other three Gospels in a few places, but if you've got Mark in front of you, open that up, and that way you can follow along. Now, the story begins with Jesus and his disciples going across uh, to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, They were going to a remote place just outside the city of Bethsaida. And they did this in order to get away from the busyness and the crowds uh, so they could get away and get a time to rest. Listen 
Listen to verse 31 of Mark. And Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For, then Mark says, For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Now, just a quick little side point. Never underestimate the value of a vacation. Really. If Jesus needed a vacation, we need a vacation. In fact, he even uses the word leisure here. Uh, they didn't have the leisure to eat. There was, there's a need for, for leisure, for resting, for taking a step away um, from the comings and the goings, as he says here. If Jesus needed it, we do too. Now, uh, there were two reasons they needed to rest. First, the disciples had just come back from their first mission trip. Listen while I read and point you to what Luke says here in his version of chapter 9, uh, verses 1 and 2. Luke says, and he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases and sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Then verse 10, he picks up, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. So, <clears throat> So what's happened is the disciples have gone out. Jesus has sent them out in pairs, and he's, he's given them power to, it says, cast out demons and cure diseases and to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And they've now regathered together and come back to Jesus, and they've got stories to tell. So they needed time to, to rest, to reflect on all that God had done in them and through them during this time. Now, uh, they also needed time to debrief with Jesus. But there's a second reason that they needed some getaway time. John the Baptist had just been murdered. Um, listen to what Matthew says here in his version, uh, chapter 14, verses 10, 12, and 13. Uh, he, that's Herod, sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. So imagine the mixture of emotions that's going on uh, as they travel across to Bethsaida. The disciples are full of excitement. They've just come back from this mission trip. They've healed. They've cast out demons. They've, they've preached the gospel. They've done things that only they've seen Jesus do. Um, and they did these things without Jesus present with them. At the very same time, uh, Jesus has just gotten this news that his dear friend, his dear co-laborer, John the Baptist, has just been murdered. Um, Jesus was close to John. They were, they were friends. They were probably relatives, maybe second cousins. We know in the early Gospels in Luke that, that Jesus' mother and John the Baptist's mother were close. They visited together, so it's likely that John and Jesus were close, maybe even played together as children. Certainly, we know they were co-laborers in the work of the kingdom. John had gone before and and set the table for Jesus to come. And even Jesus said this. Jesus said that there was, uh, there was no one born of woman 
who was greater than John the Baptist. Uh, now, that's, that's pretty high praise coming from Jesus. And now, John the Baptist was dead, uh, murdered by Herod. Uh, and Jesus was grieving. Uh, his, his heart was heavy. Uh, he had lost a friend, and he had lost a valuable uh, co-worker in the work of the ministry. And all that's going on as Jesus and the disciples are making their way across the Sea of Galilee. So that's, there's, there's great reasons they needed to get away. And yet, as they tried to get away, Mark tells us the crowds just followed them. Listen back to, um, back to Mark's gospel, verses 33 and 34. Now, many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Uh, We know this was a big crowd. We find out later that it was about 5,000 men, so it could have easily been seven, 8,000, maybe 10,000 people if there were women and children there as well. Um, John tells us that this was near the Passover, so the crowds could have been moving through Bethsaida, going to Jerusalem for the Passover, or it could have been that they were simply going to see uh, this renowned miracle worker named Jesus. Uh, But despite how tired and how emotionally burdened Jesus was, uh, notice that his heart uh, grieved even for the people. He left his own grief behind, and he, and he went out. His heart went out to the people because it says that he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then notice what Jesus does. When he feels compassion for the people, when he, when he realizes that, that they're like sheep without a shepherd, his first inclination is to teach. Um, he didn't feel sorry for them. Um, he gave them the gospel. He didn't join them in their burdens. He reminded them of the truth. He reminded them of the great grace and love and mercy and forgiveness of God toward them. He knew that that's what they needed. They didn't simply need a a shoulder to cry on or an arm around their back. Uh, They needed the truth. They needed the gospel. And that's true for us. When we feel like sheep without a shepherd, what we need most is the good news of the gospel. Now, as it began to get late in the day, the disciples became concerned for the people. This huge crowd had followed Jesus across the lake. They listened to him teach all day. It was late and nobody had eaten. And so they told Jesus to send the crowd away to the surrounding villages so that they could find food, they could take care of themselves for the evening. And at that point, Jesus says the most surprising thing. Uh, And I don't think I'd ever picked it up until I really reread this story again. Notice what he says in uh, Matthew's, and I think it's there in Mark, but I'm going to use Matthew's version. uh, Verse 16. Where is it here? But Jesus said, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, Jesus wasn't being callous. Um, He was not um, being cold or uncaring. 
He was glad that his disciples were sensitive to the needs of the people, so he just told them to do something, you know? I mean, they had just come back from a couple of weeks of of itinerant ministry themselves. They had just healed sick people, cast out demons, uh, carried out or performed miracles themselves. And so Jesus said, do something. You think they need food? Go take care of them. So the disciples look around and come up with two options. Uh, They either try to find some food or they try to tell people to go into town and buy their own food. Uh, John says that they found a young man there in the crowd who had a sack lunch, um, five barley loaves, two small fish. Now, barley loaves or uh, barley bread was really the, uh, the bread of the poorest people. If you ate barley bread, you just didn't hardly eat bread at all, you know. I mean, that was the bread that the poor people ate. Um, And these fish were probably like sardines. Uh, They were probably just there to flavor the bread, almost like a condiment, you know. Um, They were like a relish. So they had the poorest of poor people's bread and a couple of sardines. So as the disciples find ways that, that it can't be done, Jesus just does it for them. He tells folks to sit down in groups, probably so it was easier to distribute the food. Mark tells us that they sat down in green grass. Uh, and then Jesus takes the bread and the fish. He looks up to heaven. He blesses the food. And then he gives the food, the bread, the barley bread, the sardines, uh, to his disciples, and they start to distribute it. Now, wouldn't it have been so cool? I've, 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 I've always thought it would have been fun to have been one of the disciples, taking a piece of that bread, uh, part of the fish, and walking among these groups of folks sitting there in the green grass, and you tear off a piece of bread, and you hand it, and it's like the bread was never torn away. Uh, and you hand a piece of fish to someone else, and you look, and it's like, it's still a piece of fish. There's nothing that's gone. And they just kept distributing and kept distributing until all the folks ate and all the folks ate as much as they wanted to eat. In fact, Mark tells us that they were, that they ate and were satisfied. Now, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to get satisfied on poor people's bread and sardines, you know. So maybe Jesus even made the, the bread taste different. Maybe, maybe he made barley bread taste like a baked potato and sardines taste like sirloin steak, you know. Um, but they were satisfied, and that's cool. Now, all right, that's the story. You know the story. You've heard it before. Let me pull out seven implications for us that we can apply right to our lives from this story. First is this. God takes small things and does big things with them. He takes small things and does big things with them. Folks, this was, this was just a little bitty sack lunch, you know, just enough to feed one person. And it was poor people's food, you know, barley bread and sardines. But that didn't stop God. God takes insignificant things and does significant things through them. God takes physical things and does spiritual things through them. God takes temporal things and does eternal 
things through them. And folks, this is the message of the gospel. This is, this is what the gospel tells us. God does great things through insignificant people. He takes our inabilities and works in spite of them and through them. And we've seen it in the scriptures. You know it. Moses had a hard time talking. God used him to deliver the people. David was just a shepherd boy with a sling and some rocks, and he slayed Goliath and delivered God's people from the enemies. Jesus was just a nondescript, itinerant preacher, no education at the feet of the Pharisees, no social status, and yet he was the Son of God, Savior of sinners. Folks, God loves to use the things that the world considers weak and foolish and insignificant and unable, and he loves to use them to accomplish his will and his purposes. So, folks, never start your prayer with something like this. Father, I can't do what you want me to do. All I have is this. Instead, pray like this. Say, say, Father, please take the little that I have and do great things with it. I have such little faith. Take it and accomplish your will with it. I have such little Love, take it and, and use it to point people to Jesus. Um, I have such little ability to forgive, to show mercy, to be kind and patient. But, Lord, it's all I got, you know. It's all I've got for you to use. Um, what we think is nothing uh, is all God needs. <laughs> Isn't that right? What we think is nothing is all that God needs. Let me give you a great example of this. When I planted a church, we took our first mission trip. I don't know, we'd been in church for three or four years and took a mission trip. And about 15 of us went to Juarez, Mexico. Um, and we went there to join up with a, uh, an MPW mission team that was already there. And we were there for a week to do two things, to help do some construction on a, a school in, that, in a certain neighborhood, and then part of us were going to go and do vacation Bible school in that same area. Now, none of us spoke Spanish. None of us spoke Spanish. So uh, we couldn't have conversations. Uh, we couldn't share the gospel. Uh, we couldn't even communicate with the Mexican folks that were there to help us do the construction. I mean, we were just there to sort of smile and nod and use a shovel, you know. And if we were working VBS, we were smiling and nodding and doing crowd control, you know. Um, but the cool thing is, a year later, there was a church planted in that neighborhood from the contacts that were made through the VBS and the construction that we had done that week. Isn't that cool? We can't speak Spanish. God didn't care. He planted a church through it. Uh, that's what God does. Uh, the disciples were told to feed a huge crowd, and all they could come up with, with was a sack lunch, and yet a sack lunch was all Jesus needed. Uh, if you've got nothing to offer, then go ahead and offer it. 
Because God loves to work with nothing. Second, God is never afraid of commanding the impossible. He's never afraid of commanding us to do what he knows is impossible for us to do. Jesus looked the disciples in the eyes and he said, you give them something to eat. You know, don't throw this back on me. You go give them something to eat. But when he did that, he knew full well that they couldn't do what he was commanding them to do. You know, he, did, he, he, he knew that they didn't have the money nor the ability, the food to feed up to 10,000 people. And yet he told him anyway. And this is true for us. God is never afraid of telling us to do the humanly impossible. Um, He tells husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church. I can't do that. And if you're a husband, you can't do that. Um, He tells wives to submit to their husbands the way the church submits to Christ. Wives, you can't do that, you know. That's just humanly impossible. Jesus tells us to put the needs of others before our own. I can't do that. I don't feel the needs of others like I feel my own needs. Jesus tells us to to let no unwholesome word proceed out of our mouth, to only use words that are encouraging and build up. And he knows full well that we can't do it in and of ourselves. And yet he gives us... He, he doesn't give us any options, you know. He doesn't cut us any slack. He doesn't, he, he, he doesn't lessen the, um, the difficulty of, our, of, of, of those commandments simply because they're difficult, you know. Uh, Jesus never feels the need to lessen the strength of his commands simply because his commands are impossible, That leads us to the next implication. Number three, impossible situations require spiritual solutions. Impossible situations require spiritual solutions. Here's the deal. Both Jesus and the disciples were concerned about the people. Mark, verse 34 says that Jesus had compassion on them. And we know the disciples had compassion because they came to Jesus and said, we got to do something. You got to do something. These people need food. So they were both confronted with the same impossible situation. And yet, the disciples came up with a physical solution. Jesus came up with a spiritual solution. I mean, the disciples even came up with a budget. <laughs> you know? I mean, they said, Lord, it's going to take. 200 denarii to feed all these people. And that might not be enough. Now, maybe, all right, look, if we, maybe if we don't give the kids any, and maybe those people that are way out there on the fringe, we don't, we, we shortchange them. Maybe we can cut corners, tighten everything up. We might just be, they can't do that, you know. They even told Jesus what he ought to do. Jesus, just send them to the surrounding villages. Let, let them take There's food out. Let them take care of themselves, you know. They looked at what they had in their hands and said it was impossible. Jesus looked at what they had in their hands and looked to heaven. And see, 
What's interesting is they had already seen Jesus do miracle after miracle. They had seen him heal diseases and and talk to the wind and the waves and make them be quiet and even raise the dead, but they forgot. They forgot who he was. I mean, here they were in another impossible situation, and they forgot that Jesus was the Son of God. Folks, whatever you do, don't forget that the very one who commands you to do the impossible is the only one who can do the impossible. Let me tell you something. Every one of you here this morning has some issue in your life that seems and feels impossible. For some of you, it may be something rather normal, the command to obey God, the command to trust Him in a situation, to the command to love others, to live by faith. Uh, for some of you, that impossible situation is very specific. Um, you've got to trust God with a very difficult decision, a life-changing decision. You've got to um, lean into God uh, for... Financial situations or hardships. Maybe you've got to forgive yourself or forgive someone else of something deep and dark and difficult. Whatever it is, folks, don't forget Jesus. Don't scurry around looking for physical solutions to spiritual problems. Don't forget Jesus. The fourth implication is this. Jesus commands the impossible so that we will feel our need for Him. Providing food for that many people in, in, a, in a remote location, that's an impossible command. And yet Jesus told the disciples to do something that he knew they couldn't do so that they would lean into him. They would feel, they would feel their inadequacy. They would lean into his adequacy and his ability. Um, listen to how, what John says in his gospel, um, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 6. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus, Jesus said this to test Philip and the other disciples because it's, John tells us that Jesus knew what he was about to do, you know. Jesus wanted Philip and the rest of the disciples to be, uh, to be up against their impossibility. So they would feel their need for him. Uh, Now, they failed the test, you know. Uh, The solution that they came up with didn't require Jesus, didn't require the power of the Spirit, didn't require anything supernatural, uh, but it was a test for them. Uh, So, folks, if your solutions to the difficulties of life do not require Jesus, then they are not of Jesus. See, Jesus always wants us to feel our need for him. 
What's this, the fifth point? Um, Jesus reveals himself in impossible situations. He reveals himself in impossible situations. One of the purposes of this miracle was to show the disciples that Jesus truly was the Son of God. He was moving away from speaking to the crowds. He was resolutely moving toward the cross over the next year. And he was focusing his efforts on the disciples. And he wanted them to know that he truly was the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. I mean, this, this miracle wasn't about feeding the hungry. You know, I mean, these folks weren't going to starve to death if they missed a meal, you know. Um, But Jesus used it to back his disciples up in a corner and show him how much they needed him. And then to reveal himself as the Son of God in this situation. Um, Folks, I think Jesus loves to show who he is in the middle of a crisis. Um. He shows us that he's the powerful, compassionate Son of God, but he often will do it in the middle of an impossible situation. So, folks, there are things about God you will never know. You'll never experience or understand unless you learn them in the middle of a crisis, in the middle of an impossible situation. When you cry out to God in the middle of the night uh, because of a a broken marriage, um, God may not give you a step one, step two, step three, uh, but he'll give you himself. Um, When your heart breaks over the loss of a loved one or when your heart is burdened over a loved one that is walking away from the Lord, um, God may not tell you why. And he may not immediately rescue, but he'll tell you that he's enough. Um, number six, God is not intimidated by the size of your need. <clears throat> uh, I mean, the disciples looked at this huge crowd and said, it's going to take 200 denarii, 200 days wages to feed all these folks. Uh, they looked at the task before them and they lost heart. Jesus saw the same problem. Um, He didn't panic. Um, Folks, God doesn't look at the needs of your life and throw his hands up in the air and say, ah, yeah, yeah, what are we going to do? You know? Um, Jesus is not worried about what we're worried about. Right? Um, He's not overwhelmed by what overwhelms us. Jesus didn't join the disciples in their panic. Um, What's big to us is just not big to Jesus. So right now, what I want you to do is this. I want you to think of something in your life that is hard or difficult, um, something that feels impossible, something you're worried about, something that seems bigger than you can handle. Take a moment. Get something in your head. All right, now, I want you to say out loud with me, quietly, but out loud so that you can hear it. 
I want you to say, that is not too big for God. Say it with me. That is not too big for God. Folks, we need to say that about five times a day. The things in our life that, that grab us and occupy us and overwhelm us, it's not too big for God. And if it takes it, we say it over and over and over again because we're thick-headed and we don't believe the truth. Finally, what Jesus provides satisfies. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that the people ate and were satisfied. John phrases it differently. He says that they ate their fill as much as they wanted. Don't you love the feeling that you, that you get after you've eaten a big meal, Thanksgiving or something, and you're just, you're full and you're satisfied, you know. Um, then you take a nap, so... Um, What if Jesus had done what the disciples suggested? What if he had sent this huge crowd of close to 10,000 people into these nearby villages to find food? Well, I don't think they would have been satisfied or filled. They would have had to have walked who knows how far to find food. And yet, what did Jesus tell them to do? Y'all just sit down in the green grass. They would have had to spend money. That's not very satisfying. I doubt they would have gotten full. Can you imagine being a, a village shop owner? You've got a little bakery or you've got a place that you sell meats and foods and, and 10,000 people show up at your door. <laughs> the lines would have been snaked out into the streets, you know. Um, that's not very satisfying. What Jesus says is this. He says, don't go work for your food. Don't go spend money for your food. Just sit down. I'll provide it. That's the gospel. Isn't that sweet? He says, don't work. Just receive. Um, Folks, Jesus loves to take your nothing and to do big things with it. Uh, He never fears putting you in impossible situations because he knows that will drive you to him. Um, And he knows full well that he's enough for your every impossibility. Uh, Let's pray. Father, I know... I know that there are, there are situations in each of our lives this morning. We've already told you what they are. We've already confessed to you that, that these situations in our hearts are not too big for you. Help us to believe that. Father, I've got a situation, um, and, it's, and you know what it is, and it, it, it makes me fearful. It makes my hands sweat. It keeps me up at night. I don't believe that you're strong enough. Forgive me. Forgive us. Father, we repent. We own our fears, our lack of faith. Um, Help us, Father, through the power of your Spirit, to believe the truth. Uh, 
that you're enough for every impossible situation. And Father, we commit all of them to you in Jesus' name. Amen.